You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Not only in the storm is he the anchor and Lord of all, but is not Jesus the one who stretches out his hand and says, Peace, be still, and calms the storm. Hey, my name is Jason. I'm really glad that you're here with us today at Harvest Bible Chapel to worship the Lord again and to open up his word. So I want to invite you at this moment to open your Bible to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. This week and next week, uh, we will be going through the whole book of Ruth. Pastor Paul is taking some vacation with Sue. On Friday, I think it was, they sent us some pictures of the Grand Canyon and it, they were sweet. They were pictures, it was the Grand Canyon. And I, amazing. I hope to go there myself one day. But uh, I'm privileged to be able to go through this whole book over the next two weeks. And we're starting uh, today. Uh, Ruth has become one of my more favorite stories in the Bible. Um, true, historical, real. It's amazing. Um, I used to have a really bad attitude towards good stories. Uh, specifically like books. I had this like really lazy attitude, just like, ah, I'll, I'll wait till the movie comes out or something like that. I don't need, I'll let the director imagine what it's like so I don't have to imagine it myself. And, uh, but my attitude started to kind of change after when I heard like the, the Hobbit movies were being released because I really liked the Lord of the Rings movies and I was like, well, I know a lot of people who are reasonable that have read those books. Maybe I'll try, try reading some of it. So I did. And rather than reading Lord of the Rings, I read a book by J.R.R. Tolkien called The Silmarillion. I think we got a picture of it right there. Crazy book. It's what like I'd imagine it'd be like reading if you handed Deuteronomy to someone who's never read the Bible before and say, have fun. It's like, it's so dense and diverse, but I loved it. It's kind of like, think of in Tolkien's world, Lord of the Rings is the New Testament. This is kind of like the Old Testament of his fiction that he created. Uh, and it started me thinking, I was like, hey, maybe there's some other fun books that uh, I, I could read. And my wife and I really like this uh, movie. Please don't judge, judge me. It's called The Princess Bride. And, <laughs> and we got the book, The Princess Bride. And guess what? The dialogue is like word for word the same as the movie, except like there's a lot more backstory and narrative. And it's so much fun reading this book. And I quickly realized, and I started to look at my own life as I read nonfiction books. And I was like, our life is kind of like an unfolding narrative, an unfolding story. And I read this um, autobiography of C.S. Lewis called uh, Surprised by Joy. And his, his life has, has closed. His life is over. The story is done. And I can look at his story and reflect and see some of my own in it. But our story is not done. We don't know the end of this chapter that you're in, let alone the end of this whole Story, But one of the key themes in any good narrative is restoration. Uh, Buttercup and the stable boy's relationship was broken. And they would come back together and destroy the five-fingered man and restore what was lost. That's Princess Bride, if you didn't know. (laughs) Restoration is a key theme in any good narrative. And um, though the Bible is a collection of many different literary works over many different authors, written over many years, it has one cohesive, true, historical story. And the theme, the main central theme of that story is God is restoring his kingdom unto himself 
through Jesus Christ. And the book and story, the true story of Ruth, plays a crucial piece in the progression of this narrative. And I'm really excited to read it all with you. A couple things I want us to be aware of over the next two weeks. We just uh, finished uh, a preaching series through the book of Peter. Peter is a, uh, it's a letter. It's not a narrative. And as most letters are in the New Testament, it's very practical. Be humble. Submit to your elders. Endure in suffering. It tells you what to do. Uh, a narrative isn't like that. Um, instead of getting practical exhortations in a narrative, we're going to see a, a, a personal exaltation. Uh, the personal exaltation of the nature of God. The personal intimate side of Ruth and of Naomi and of Boaz. So I'm praying and hoping that through the personal nature of seeing these true characters and our true and living God, and as we elevate and exalt his nature, that your faith will be so strengthened in a God who does not change, our God, our faithful God, who restores the broken. So generally, uh, before we get into things, uh, you're, we're asked to stand and read the passage. But we're reading two chapters today, so we're not going to read. But I would ask you to stand so that we would pray together. And I would invite you, if you feel so inclined, with an attitude of submission, uh, to lift your hands when we pray. Let's speak to the Lord. Father, we are in desperate need of you. We are lost apart from you. Lord, you are weaving together the narrative of, our, of the story of our life as you have woven together this story. Father, we are in the midst of it and we don't know the beginning from the end, but you are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Father, I pray that we would see the faithfulness of your character to restore what's broken. And God, in the midst of our brokenness, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would exalt your own nature, and that you would give us the courage to never give up, to endure with hope, and to praise you even in the fog. We give thanks and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, kind of like a story, we're going to look at this uh, in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, with a prologue and with an epilogue. Today, we're going to look at the prologue, prologue, Act 1, and Act 2. And in the prologue, it kind of sets the stage for the story and reveals to us four themes that are going to progress the narrative. So let's read verse 1 to 5. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Four themes that are going to progress this narrative to its end of restoration. Theme one, God's faithfulness to his own covenant. Though we're reading a story about people, the main hero, the protagonist, is not, are not any of the people in this story. The main protagonist is God. And what God is revealing, the main theme that he is revealing in this story, is that God is weaving the narrative together to accomplish his own purposes, primarily his faithfulness to his own covenant. Covenant is an agreement, a promise between God and man. And at this point in human history, it says at the time when the judges ruled, God had promised that the nation of Israel would settle in the land that he chose with peace and prosperity, given that they would hold to the condition of keeping the commandments of the law. Yet they did not. And at the time of the judges, they were all doing what was right in their own eyes rather than following the law. And rather than dwelling in peace and prosperity, they suffered in chaos. Yet, the story of Ruth is a bridge built by God to rescue his people out of chaos and towards the peace and prosperity he promised. Theme two, God's faithfulness to his own people. One of the blessings of the covenant was that the land itself, the chosen land, would be an everlasting inheritance. That they would enjoy the peace and prosperity of this land and the harvests that it would produce forever if they kept the law. And if each family's generation and family, family's lineage was intact, then each generation of each family had a share in this inheritance. But as we start in the prologue, we see that Elimelech's family line is broken. And not only that, they were living in the foreign land far from the land of promise. But God would demonstrate his faithfulness to this broken family and restore their inheritance in the land. Third, theme, God's sovereignty over suffering. Though this book is titled Ruth, Ruth is not the real focus of the narrative. Naomi and her suffering is the real focus of the story. And though she doesn't believe so at first, the truth is God is not absent from her suffering, nor against her in her suffering, but sovereign over her suffering. The final theme is God's sovereignty over all nations. So Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. And the Moabites were enemies of Israel. The law actually prohibited Moabite males from participating in formal worship gatherings in the nation of Israel. They were enemies. Not only were they enemies, but they worshipped a false pagan god. And in any form of paganism, um, they really believe that their god is a territorial god and only has authority over like their specific people and their specific land. But God is going to show his sovereignty over all nations. God is going to demonstrate his authority over any cultural barrier that we create, over any wall that we build up, not only his authority, but that his covenant blessings can extend to all. These are the four themes. So having the stage set now, we proceed into Act 1. Let's read verse 6 to 7. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. 
and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. After 10 years of famine, Naomi sees opportunity to return to the land of promise. And when I was reading this, I kind of thought to myself, this, this kind of feels like one of those stereotypical airport scenes in a rom-com movie, you know? Like, Ruth traveled a little bit with her daughters-in-law, but they meet a point of no return. It's kind of like, it's kind of like they all got their bags packed, they all got their tickets in hand, they go over to Pearson, and they get to customs, but just before they pass through, Ruth turns around and says, go home. You're not coming with me. Let's read this, verse 8 to verse 15. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi pleaded with her daughters, Go home. Go home. There's no future for you with me. Try to imagine Naomi's thought process that's going on here. Um, Maybe she was silent as they walked to that place of no return. Silent not because she couldn't handle and, and was thinking about the suffering of the people she lost, but thinking that she would have to suffer again by losing her daughters in law, but thinking that it was the only option. Maybe she thought, in Bethlehem, they're gonna have nothing. But if they go back to Moab, they could start a new life. In Bethlehem, they're going to be foreign wanderers. They're going to be dependent on others. But if they stay in in Moab, maybe they'll find rest. I know I'm asking them to erase a decade of their life. And I know that means that, that I'll have to make the journey to Bethlehem all by myself. And that I'll likely live the rest of my life alone but I love them too much and they have no future with me. But after her first plea, it doesn't convince them. So she tries again. Go home. Go home because God is against me and it pains me that you're in pain because I'm being punished. Naomi thought that God, wrongly thought that God was unjustly punishing her and she was bitter that the daughter-in-laws that she loved were caught up in this debris too. Finally, with this plea, Orpah concedes, but Ruth does not. So she tries one more time and she says, go home, go home, Ruth. The familiar is gonna be better than the unknown. 
The familiar will be better than the unknown. It's not in a bad way, but it's become harder and harder to kind of define what it means to be a Canadian. Um, we have so much diversity that we're blessed with in this country. Um, and I don't know, if we really thought about it, maybe we could come up with, some, with a list. Uh, like I grew up in Stouffville and all of my friends uh, liked hockey, but, but now I moved to Markham and like nobody likes hockey. They like basketball. And maybe it was like, I don't know, we're, we're Canadian because we like poutine or something. But, but then if we went out west, they'd say, I'm Canadian because I work on the oil sands and I watch the stampede every year. And you're like, what's the stampede? And... National identity for us might be harder to identify, but for people in Ruth's age in this time, it was pretty clear. It was actually like five things really defined your national identity. Uh, The land that you lived in, the king that you were subject to, the ethnicity you shared, the language you spoke, and the territorial god that you worshipped. And Naomi told her, the familiar is better than the unknown, because she knew if Naomi left Moab that she would be abandoning her entire identity for nothing. And essentially she told to her, don't follow me. Don't follow me. I'm not worth the abandonment of your entire self-image. But then Naomi, or Ruth responds, And we see the loyalty of Ruth. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She said no more. Naomi said, don't follow me. I'm not worth the entire abandonment of your whole self-image. And Ruth responds and says, don't you dare try to tell me what our relationship is or is not worth. I will abandon everything because of my love for you. That is an amazing, amazing act of love and of loyalty. And frankly, her response is unparalleled to any other decision that's ever been made in the history of the nation of Israel. To put it into some perspective, um, Abraham did something like this where he left his identity to follow uh, God. But Abraham, he was told, like, go to a place. Uh, Don't worry about the places. You'll you'll find out later. Place doesn't matter. Um, But when you go, I'm going to prosper you. And you and your wife are going to have a family that becomes as innumerable as the stars. And, and the whole world is going to be blessed by your name. A lot of people consider Abraham to have the greatest faith in that act, um, which is true, amazing faith. But Ruth had nothing. And Ruth was promised Nothing. And she clung in loyalty to a woman who could give her nothing. 
this is a radical decision of loyalty. And moreover than that, she ratifies her radical decision by swearing an oath, supposing that only further pain and suffering would await her in Bethlehem. She swore an oath to ratify her decision, not to her little territorial Moabite God, but she swore an oath to the true and living God, subjecting herself unto God, saying that if I didn't hold true to this oath, you can do more than death to me, thereby swearing her allegiance no more to a false God, but to the true and living sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? Naomi can do no more. So they travel to Bethlehem together. But when we get there, we really see the depth of Naomi's bitterness. We really see Naomi's bitter heart. Look at verse 19 to 22. It says, so the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Does your Bible have footnotes like me? Like, and there's like a little number one and a little number two beside Naomi and Mara. Do you guys see that in your Bible? Yeah, when I looked under the bottom, number one, footnote one, it says Naomi means pleasant. Number two, Mara means bitter. Uh, often in the scripture, we see that names do more than just like it's something cute that your parents give to you so we don't call you a million different things, but it like identified them. Names in the scripture often identified people. Like Abraham's uh, name is father of many nations, right? And uh, the depth of Naomi's bitter heart is saying, because of what God did to me, don't call me Naomi. Pleasant. Don't know me as pleasant. Know me as the embodiment of bitterness. She unjustly thinks that God has been punishing her. She can't see God's true nature through the fog of her suffering, and her faith in the true living God is skewed. Let's back out of this story and think about our own story for a second. We all face suffering. You have, and I have, we face the loss of loved ones, lack of physical needs, poor and failing health, emotional, mental, and physical anguish. Uh, my family, like yours, has, has experienced uh, a lot of suffering. Um, uh, my wife and I and uh, my family, like, it's, we, we've gone through a lot. And when I was young myself, um, I suffered through a lot of loneliness, a lot of nights spent alone and just, it was really hard. And, and as I progressed uh, and got older, there was a, a short span of time where having lost already one of my grandparents, three of my four grandparents died in a very short uh, span of time. And, and I look at my parents and, and, and I see what they went through and it seems like they've almost seen every color of the rainbow in suffering. Um, 
And I know you've seen a lot of it too. But in the midst of your suffering, we have to ask ourselves, where do we consider God to be? Where is God in the fog of your suffering? Do you think he's the one that actually made the fog? Just because he wants to see you wander around and you're bitter towards him like Naomi? Or, or maybe you think God is able to lift this suffering. It's not his fault, but he can lift it, but he's not. He doesn't care. Be convinced today, friends, that God is neither against you in your suffering nor absent from you in the fog, but he is with you. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is not absent from you nor against you in your suffering, friends. In the midst of the fog, though you may not see it, God is with his children. Naomi could not see it. And as act one closes, we, we sympathize for her, but we see that just like you can't see right. But we sympathize deeply for her. And, the, and then we look at Ruth and we highly esteem Ruth. We want the best for Ruth. And then act, act two opens and we see a new character introduced and these old protagonists, their character begins to develop. And in the development of these characters, we see the story and the narrative of restoration begin to progress. So let's read verse chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, and we'll start to see the character of Ruth. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come up to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of his reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The character of Ruth, she's an amazing woman. First, understand this. Uh, we saw in Act 1, she is loyal. She is loyal, and she is fiercely loving. A second part of her character, uh, Ruth is beginning to develop a strong faith. I was really struck by the language of how she asked Naomi if she could go to the fields. She, she believed that when she asked a landowner if she could glean in his harvest, she believed that she would find his favor. She wasn't questioning or fearful. She said, let me go in the eyes of him who I shall find favor. She's developing a strong faith. 
Third, she was humble. A lot of us can be like, we know we're in need, and we're, we know we need handouts, but we're like, I don't, no, 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 I don't want handouts. And she, Ruth knew she needed handouts. Ruth knew she was dependent on other people, but she wasn't ashamed of it. She was humble, and she looked for help. Finally, Ruth was a hard worker. Uh, we see that she started in mourning, had one small rest. We'll continue to read that she stopped for lunch too, and then worked all the way to evening. Ruth was a hard worker. But now let's see the character of Boaz. We're going to keep reading to understand more of the worth of who he is. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink where the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The character of Boaz. I think the worth, it says he's a worthy man. I think his worth truly is in his character. First, in a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Boaz honored the name of the Lord. Uh, Not only that, secondly, in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Boaz lived by the law of the Lord. Um, So this idea of reaping where like sojourners, uh, wandering foreigners could go into a field and pick up some of the leftovers of the harvest that were dropped behind. This wasn't just like, I don't know, coincidence or she wasn't just like hoping. This was in law. This was in the Israel law. Deuteronomy 24, 19, it said, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And Now, they had had 10 years of famine. And someone who was doing what was only right in his own eyes wouldn't let a foreigner come and just pick up his hard-earned harvest. Well, listen, lady. Okay, we've had 10 years of famine. This is my first harvest, all right? I got bills to pay. You did no work to earn this. I ain't letting you take a single grain, right? But Boaz didn't do what is right in his own eyes. He lived by the law of the Lord. Third, Boaz was compassionate. He didn't hear the story of Ruth and, hey, this this woman left her mother and father left her land out of loyalty to her mother-in-law. And Boaz was just like, huh, what's the barley count for the day? No, he was moved in his spirit and he had compassion for her. Her story moved him. And more than that, he didn't just have compassion. This fourth characteristic, he had mercy. He didn't just feel, he did something about it. He moved to action. 
we should highly esteem Ruth and Boaz for their faithful character, but understand the story and of the glory of this story does not belong to Ruth or to Boaz. The glory belongs to the Lord. We are not to praise Boaz for some humanistic, philanthropic work that he had, providing goodness for humanity so we could build ourselves up and escape from poverty. That's not it at all. Boaz understand that it was the Lord who visited the land and gave the harvest. Boaz understand that his land was given to him from God. Boaz understand that he needed to be obedient to the law and let Ruth glean. This isn't Boaz's goodness. This isn't just the favor of man. This is the divine grace of God. This is the favor of God. Read 14 to 16 with me and we'll see just how deep this favor goes. It says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, not the hired servants, the reapers. And she passed she passed to her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it to glean and do not rebuke her. It's not just like, hey, if you leave something behind, let her have it. It's like, hey, intentionally take some of your stuff out and drop it from her so she can have way more than she ever thought. Ruth wasn't looking for, for these privileges. Ruth was just looking for basic needs. The favor of God might give you some basic rights, but the divine, the favor of man might give you basic rights. The favor of God blows away anything we could ever imagine. It not only met her basic needs and then some, the favor of God actually is beginning to give her a new identity. She was considered under the law. Her technical status was a sojourner. Sojourners had some basic rights. Boaz wasn't giving her basic rights. She was, giving her, uh, she was being given privileges, and it blew her away. She wasn't just being treated as a foreigner who was entitled to some leftovers. Boaz spoke to her as one who deserved a full reward from the God of Israel. Not as a foreigner. She was being treated as like a citizen. And Ruth recognizes the abnormality of the generosity and she's like blown away. Like, I, I, you're, you're being kind to me and I'm not even one of your hired servants, but you're treating me as a hired servant. It's as if like you and I got like a one month contract from a temp agency and on day two, you're like, why are you giving me a full time employment benefit package? I don't need dental. I'm gone in 29 days, right? I don't deserve this. The grace of God extended way beyond ever what she imagined. The grace of God gave her a new identity when she had abandoned her old one out of her love for Naomi. Let's step back out of the story again and, and think about our own narrative. The grace of God in Jesus Christ changes our own identity too. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 12 and 13 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of us are sinners. Myself, your own self, anyone that you will meet today or watch on the television today, all of humanity is under the curse of our sin. We are lawbreakers. We have broken God's law and have incurred the punishment of the law. We are by our own self, apart from Jesus Christ, considered like the Moabites, foreigners and enemies to God because of our sin. But Jesus Christ became the curse of sin. Jesus Christ took the punishment that you deserved so that in taking your punishment, you, if you would believe in him, would be forgiven. And if you would believe that Jesus Christ's punishment, his, his suffering was enough to forgive your sin, to take your payment, if you would confess Christ is enough, you will be forgiven. If you would confess, I am guilty, but Christ is enough, then God would no longer look at you as a foreigner, but as a citizen of the kingdom with a share, a full share and a full reward in the inheritance of eternal life. If you would believe Christ is enough, you would not be considered a mere servant or an enemy, but a child of God loved by your heavenly father. This is a free gift of grace. If you believe in Christ, you have a new identity. Grace changes our identity. It not only changed Ruth's identity, but it, grace, the favor of God, began to sow seeds of hope in the brokenness of Naomi. Seeds of hope have begun to be sown Let's look at verse uh, 17 to verse 23. After I find my place, apparently I'm in 2 Samuel. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. They beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I had worked is today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he, he said to me, you, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the harvest and the wheat barleys. And she lived with her mother-in-law. 
the favor of God, the grace of God began to sow seeds of hope into what was broken first. It started to sow seeds of hope that this broken family could be restored. We're intentionally meant to, uh, to read and see the family connection between Elimelech and Boaz. And those who would be familiar with the law, maybe the first readers of the book of Ruth, their ears would have immediately perked up. And they would have been like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Elimelech's in the same family line as Boaz? That means Boaz could marry Ruth. And that means Ruth could have a son. And that means that the Elimelech's family line could be, could, be, uh, could be restored. And that means the family's inheritance could be taken up again. And now that we see this, this capacity, um, we anxiously begin to anticipate a happy ending. The seeds of hope are sown that a broken family could be restored. The seeds of hope are sown that are beginning to restore Naomi's bitter heart. When she sees the favor extended to her daughter-in-law, she is bewildered too. And for the first time in maybe a decade, the fog of her suffering begins to lift and the grace of God allows her faith to be restored in God's true nature. She considers God's grace and she says, I haven't been forsaken. I'm not alone. God isn't absent from me. She considers God's grace and for the first time, maybe in a decade, she actually worships. She blesses the Lord. God's attitude for his children is never against them nor absent from them, but always for their good as he accomplishes his glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and verse 38 to 39 says, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the same is true for you today. In your fog, God is not absent from you. God is not against you. God is with you and he is for you. The fog of your suffering may be dense. You may not be able to see your hand in front of your face, but nothing can separate you from God. That's the truth. But you know what? You may be struggling to believe that. And I understand. But if you're going to be restored, if you're going to get away from just um, soaking up the pity of others, if you're going to get away from sorrow and find true joy, you need to return your eyes to the grace of God. 
return your eyes to the grace of God and remember that in Christ Jesus, you have a new identity. Remember in Christ Jesus, your eternity is set and secure and that no matter what happens on this earth, nothing's taken you away from the love of God. If you struggle to believe this, I pray that you would take the words of Psalm 42.11 and you would make them your own words. Pray this verse in your heart. Pray, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Return your eyes to salvation. Maybe it was hard to sing today. Maybe you've been coming to church for weeks or months or years and you might read words on the screen, but you're not singing in your heart. Come back to the gospel. Come back to grace. Uh, you may know the story of Job, a man who was wealthy beyond what we could ever think and had a family of great immense size. And in a moment, it was all snatched away from him not only his things and his family, but his health, so much so that he had a skin disease so severe, he wished that he had a piece of clay to just scrape his skin bare. He was in such pain. Yet in the midst of his suffering, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When, what end of that spectrum do you see yourself on today? The Lord gives or the Lord takes away. My hope for you is that you would be able to say today, in the midst of your fog, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, blessed be the name of the Lord. Please stand with me. I'm going to pray for you. Lord, our story is still being written. We do not see the beginning from the end. Father, we are locked in now. But you, God, you are the beginning from the end and you hold our beginning from our end. I take such comfort in the words of Jesus saying that he holds us secure in his hand that the Father gave us to him and nothing can snatch us away. There is such comfort in the words of Christ saying in this world, you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Lord, we face much pain and struggle and our bodies, our hearts, our souls can groan with pain, waiting for the day where it will be said that every tear is wiped from our eyes, that death is no more, that the former things passed away, that the dwelling place of God is with man where all things are restored to paradise. We long for this, but our bodies groan. And in our groaning, I pray, lift our eyes. Lift our eyes that we would see the name and the grace of Jesus Christ and that our words and our heart would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Teach us to say this from our hearts, we pray in Christ's name.